Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, as we continue our study through the life of Jesus, today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that tells us about Jesus healing a man born uh, uh, blind from, from birth. Let me set the context. If you were a Jew in the Old and in the New Testament, uh, you would be you would participate in three uh, feasts, three celebrations. And during those times, wherever you lived, you would make your way up to Jerusalem, and you would have these feasts. The first feast was the feast of the Passover, and in the Passover, you would celebrate God's power in delivering. Israel from Egypt when they were slaves there for all those years, and God, He brought the plagues that He broke Pharaoh, and He parted the sea, and you would celebrate God's power in the Passover. The second one was the Pentecost, Feast of the Pentecost, and you would come and you would celebrate the, the harvest that had just come in. You would celebrate the fact that, that, that God always gives us exactly what we need to do what He's called us to do. The third one you would always go to was the Feast of the Tabernacles. And in the Feast of the Tabernacles, there were two things going on. First, there was another harvest that happened during that time, and so you thank God uh, for the harvest of food. But also in the Feast of the Tabernacles, you remembered that God, during Israel's 40 years of wandering in the desert, He was always with them. He, he, he led them, remember, a pillar of cloud, a, a column of of cloud at, at during the day, and they would follow that cloud, and he led them by a pillar of fire at night. And when he stopped, they would stop, and when they stopped, they would build these temporary shelters, tabernacles, and they would live in those shelters. So the Feast of the Tabernacles, the people remembered God's protection, God's provision, God's leading, and they would build the tabernacles, and for a week, they would live around uh, Jerusalem in these, in these tabernacles. Now, another thing took place at the Feast of the Tabernacles, and that was the lighting of giant lamps around the temple. They would take the, the priest's worn-out clothes, and they would use them for wicks for these giant lamps. And so all during the, the Feast of the Tabernacles for this week, the, these lights were going all the time, and people would come around them, and there would be singing, and there would be dancing, there would be celebration, and they would remember with these giant lights that when God was leading the people through uh, the wilderness journey. He always was providing for them. There was that pillar of fire by night and the cloud uh, by day, the pillar of cloud by day. You remember last time Jesus went into Jerusalem halfway through the feast, went to the, ta- went to the temple, and he started teaching, and he created quite a stir and there was a lot of controversy about who Jesus was, and the religious leaders came, and, and through the rest of chapter 7, through chapter 8, there is this discussion that goes back and forth uh, between the religious leaders and Jesus. And it's in chapter 8, verse 12. Now think of the picture. Jesus is in the, is in the temple area. These giant lamps are going. They're lit. These lamps are the reminder that God led Israel by a pillar of fire at night. And right in the middle of that, Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the what? Oh, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness just like 
children of Israel never walked without God leading them. So whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Just as that pillar of fire guided the children of Israel through their desert wanderings, so Jesus says, I am the light from God who will illuminate the way to eternal life. And Jesus may have been implicating as well that he was the God who led them through the wilderness back in the Old Testament. With Jesus, you never walk in darkness, but always in the light of life. And the religious leaders didn't miss the implications Jesus was trying to make. So in chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now in chapter 9, here's what we want to focus today. Jesus proves that he's the light of the world. I want to go through this story. It's a fantastic story. Go through the story and then draw some application at the end. Look at verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. This story uh, takes place uh, in Jerusalem, probably at the temple. Uh, the, the lame and the blind would strategically gather at uh, the temple because they figured, wouldn't you figure? It makes sense, right? They figured that uh, worshipers, true worshipers, would be the most generous people on earth. And so uh, it'd be like people uh, out the door of our South Hills campus here. It'd be like people down the steps uh, at the Washington campus. It'd be like people gathering outside the main doors uh, at PTI. And, and they would be there because they would figure if you just worshiped God and you were a true worshiper, you didn't go in there just to sing songs, right? You're a generous giver. You, you know that everything you own is a gift from God. And you want to use it the way God wants you to use it. So it's not about just receiving, it's about giving. And so the people strategically stayed by the, the temple. And here was this man, born blind. Something caused the disciples and Jesus to focus on this man. We don't know what it was, but, but they're in front of this man, and they're, they're talking about him. They're discussing his situation. They're even learning that it wasn't an accident that he was blind or it wasn't a disease. He, he was born blind. Look at verse 2. His disciples uh, asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born uh, blind? This was a, this was a popular um, theology in that day. If you were sick, you had sinned. Sickness was always a result of of sin. Now, the problem with that, if you were born blind, how could you have sinned in the womb, right? So, you couldn't have sinned. Your parents must have sinned. And so, the disciples bought into that popular theology. Who sinned to make this man blind? He probably couldn't do it, but maybe it was his parents. Jesus um, squelches that theology and the non-productive speculation of the disciples Look at verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened, so what? The work of God might be displayed in his life. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Sometimes he allows sickness as a platform for the glory of God. We never invite it. We never want it. 
But God will sometimes allow sickness or challenges to come into our life as a platform to show His glory. A guy named Bill Lutz has been in our church for many years. He's uh, uh, in, in, in failing health for, for sure. Some tough times right now. Bill Lutz has witnessed to more people during his times of dialysis. He has witnessed to more doctors because he has had many transplants and all kinds of stuff. He has witnessed to more friends during his time of sickness than many of us will ever during our time of health. And I got to tell you, some of you are going through some tough times, and we are so thankful for you. We are so proud of you, your strength and your courage and, your, and the power that you show. You amaze us by how you demonstrate in tough health situations the glory of God. You are using a tough time to glorify God as a platform. And we encourage you, and we're thankful for you. Look at verse 5, 4. Jesus says, as long as it is day, as long as I'm here, he's saying, we must do the things, um, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming. I'm not always going to be here. Night is coming when no one can work. And then he repeats that. While I am In the world, what? I'm the light of the world. Now check this out. Jesus just says, he makes a statement. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And now look at the next verse. Having said this, having said this, now he is going to prove it. He's going to prove that he can bring light out of darkness. And so he he spit on the ground, verse Uh, six. He spit on the ground and he made some mud with the saliva and he put it on the man's eyes and he told him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Jesus healed people in a variety of ways. Sometimes he touched their eyes. Sometimes he he spit on his hand and put that on their eyes. Here he makes mud. You can read a lot of commentators uh, that spill a lot of ink on why he made the mud. We don't know for sure. But we know this. This is interesting. When he put the mud on the guy's eyes, he told him to go do something. When he just healed a person's eyes, they, they, they were healed just like that. They usually are the ones who came to him and said, Jesus, I, I believe in you. I, I, I think you're the Messiah. I want, you to, I, I want you to heal my eyes. They're the ones who initiated the conversation. But this guy, he was just sitting there. Jesus went to him. And so Jesus uh, wants him to demonstrate some faith, right? He wants him to really go do something. If you really believe who I am, go do something. We'll talk about that uh, here in in a second. And so the man did. Look at the end of verse 7. The man went and washed, and he came home singing. Can you even imagine this guy's excitement? This guy had been born blind. He had never seen a thing. He had never seen a pinpoint of light. And now he, he can see. There was light all around him, and he headed straight home to share the news. He wanted to go tell his family. He wanted to go tell his friends. He wanted to go tell those people who knew him. When we have exciting news, we want to tell people about it, right? 
like restaurants and movies and... Okay, I already hit that horse, didn't I? Okay. Look at verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, it looks like him, but it can't be him. We saw him leave this morning as a beggar. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Isn't it amazing? This man looked different. He had been blind all his life, and now his opened eyes had changed his countenance. And the neighbors asked the, 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 the obvious question, what in the world happened to you? How could you see? And they took him to the religious leaders, because that what, that's what you did when someone was healed. You took them to the religious leaders, and they wanted the religious leaders to see this miraculous thing that, that, that God had done. And the religious leaders weren't impressed. First, they heard this name Jesus again, and they were sick and tired of hearing the name Jesus. They had to get him out of the way. And secondly, when did the miracle happen? on the Sabbath, and they hated it, that Jesus had broken the law, and so now they had something against him, and they initiate a full-fledged investigation, four rounds of investigation to figure out what happened. Let's go through those rounds quickly. Round one, the religious leaders questioned the man. He told them the story. This man, Jesus, made mud put it on my eyes, told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam. I did. I was able to see just like that. Look at verses 16 and 17. There was a split jury from his first uh, testimony. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not know, he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, wait a minute. How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? He's, if he's not from God, how's he healing people? And so they were split. That was round one. And round two, the leaders went to talk to the man's parents. They asked the obvious questions. Is this your son? Was he born blind? How can he see? And they said, well, we don't know. He's old enough. Go ask him. Don't mess with us. Here's why they said that. Look at verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who, acclaimed, who, who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Being put out of the synagogue was the worst thing that could happen to a Jew in that day. Socially uh, rejected, spiritually rejected, your family rejected you. And they said, we are not going to risk that. He's of age, you go ask him. And so they come back uh, to the man. And they start talking uh, to him again. Here's the third round of questioning. Look at verse uh, 24, a second time, they come to the man, so they've gone to him the first time, the parents, now the second time they come to him, and they said, give glory to God. And what that means is, quit lying. You're lying. Now tell the truth. Give glory to God and tell the truth. Verse uh, 24, we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And he says in verse 25, look, I don't know who he is. I never met him before. He just showed up and he put mud on my eyes, whether he's a sinner or not. I don't know, but one thing I know, I was blind, and now I see. I was blind, and now I see. 
In the final round of questioning, things get interesting. The former blind man is tired of the questioning, and he starts getting a little sarcastic. He has the gift of sarcasm. Verse 26. Then they said to him, well, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? And he said, look, I've told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Well, they didn't appreciate that. And they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are a disciple of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. For, as for this fellow, we don't even know uh, where he comes from. Now, I love this guy because not only does he have this gift of sarcasm, he doesn't know when to stop. I can relate to that. Uh, look at verse 28. Uh, uh, they hurled insults at him. Uh, I already read that. Uh, look at verse, uh, the next verse. Uh, verse 30, this man said, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from. You're the religious leaders. And you don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to, this is a man born blind from birth. Think about this. This is a beggar now lecturing the religious leaders, the highest status symbol of that day. Now we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to godly men who does His will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this they replied, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they excommunicated him. They threw him out of the synagogue. What his parents feared, he experienced. Now think about it. This man has had quite a day, right? Born blind, started the day as a blind beggar, met Jesus, healed through rounds of inquisition, kicked out of the synagogue. He hadn't even had lunch yet. And he's not even a believer yet. He just knows there's a man named Jesus who made him see. Now check out the, the compassion and kindness and care of Jesus. Look at verse 35. When Jesus heard that he had been thrown out of the uh, uh, synagogue, he went and he found him. Jesus went and found him. Jesus always finds us, right? And he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, who is he, sir? The man said, tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And look at this. Beautiful. Repentance, confession, and worship. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. I believe. And he worshiped him. I'm going to wrap this up with several practical applications from this life of the former blind man. I was struck with several things as I went through this. First, there was immediate worship. There's immediate obedience, rather. This man didn't seek out Jesus. Jesus sought him. Jesus puts mud on his eyes. He has no idea who Jesus is, but as soon as Jesus tells him, 
go wash in the pool of Siloam. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't argue. He doesn't say, what's going to happen if I do? He doesn't say, who are you? He doesn't say, prove to me who you are so I can go do what you want me to do. He just, he went. Immediate uh, obedience. Is Jesus telling you to do anything? Is Jesus telling you to stop anything? Stop doing it. What, what, what are you putting off? Why are you putting it off? In, in what areas do you refuse to obey? Why do you refuse to obey? What are you, what are you waiting for? You see, just like this man's obedience allowed him to see, so God has great things for you on the other side of obedience. Always does. He may be testing your faith. He may be saying, do you really trust me? Do you really believe I can handle this? Do you really believe, if I'm asking you to do this, that there's going to be something good on the other side? Or do you, do you still think maybe if, I, if you follow me, there may be something you don't like on the other side? Don't you know me by now? God's best for you is always on the other side of obedience. What are you waiting for? Immediate change. This man was changed. His, his healing changed his countenance. He was a new person. He was thankful for his change. He was public about his change. He never backed down. He never backed down. He said, look, I don't know exactly who this man was. I can't answer all the questions. I am not a Bible scholar like you religious uh, Pharisees. But I, I know this. I was blind in what? Now I see. And I'm not going back down on that. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, right? And then he died on a cross, raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And so Jesus, knowing that would happen, said, not only am I the light of the world, but you are the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. You are the light of the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who gave his life for Christ. He was a German pastor, pastor during the Nazi uh, regime, and uh, he, he tried to do some things to, politically. Uh, he actually came to the United States for a while. He was safe here. He said, I can't stay here in the United States when my countrymen are going through all that. Went back, was thrown in jail, put in a concentration camp, and, uh, and died like three weeks before the war ended. Tremendous writer, tremendous uh, intellect, theologian. Here's what uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer says about believers being light. Listen to this. This is good stuff. It is not you are to be the light. They are already the light because Christ has called them. They are a light which is seen by men. They cannot be otherwise. Nor does Jesus say you have the light. The light is not an instrument which has been put in your hands. He says to his followers, 
You are the light in your whole existence, provided you remain faithful to your calling. And since you are the light, you can no longer remain hidden, even if you want to be. Let me say that again. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, if Christ has found you, you are the light. You can't remain hidden even if you want to be. Light can't remain hidden. It's the property of light to shine. Followers of Jesus must be what they really are. Otherwise, they are not followers of Jesus. You hear what he's saying? If Jesus is in you, you're the light. You're shining. If you're not shining, he ain't in you. It can't be otherwise. Immediate change. Light. Immediate sight is the next one. The physical healing was not enough. The miracle still left the man spiritually blind. You know, we live in a day and age. This is crazy. We get more excited over physical healing than new birth. Don't we? If someone would say, hey, I was sick and I got healed, like people, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Are you serious? Does that really happen? And someone says, I became a Christian. It's like, oh, that's great. That's cool. Becoming a Christian is more of a miracle than any physical healing ever. The physical healings were a sign of who Jesus was. This man was physically healed, but he was going to go to hell being able to see. And so Jesus came and gave him the greatest miracle. Look at verse 39. He comes to him. Look at verse 38. He comes to him and he says, I am the one who gave you your sight. I am the son of man. I am the son of God. I'm the Messiah. And he said, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said in verse 39, for judgment, I have come into the world. I'm the dividing line. So that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Those who realize they need to see, those who realize their spiritual darkness, they'll trust in me and they'll be able to see. Those who won't confess their spiritual blindness because they think they got it all together, they think they already see, then they're going to remain blind. Some of the Pharisees, they, the Pharisees didn't miss that. They said, well, are you talking about us? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind you would not be guilty of sin. If you realized your need for me, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. Now that you claim you can see, you've got it all together. You've got it all worked out. You don't need me. Your guilt remains. Jesus brings the, the immediate sight, but it's not a physical sight. It's the sight from our heart. The darkness of our heart is gone. He comes and he allows us to follow him and to be the light that he's called us to be. Uh, writing of this, uh, St. Augustine uh, says this. 
You know, there are a lot of people who say, well, you know, I don't know if that guy's a Christian, but he's really a good person. I don't know if she's a Christian, but she's really a moral woman. St. Augustine says this, there are many who, according to common usage, are called good people, good men, good women, harmless, honoring their parents, not committing adultery, doing no murder, not stealing, not bearing false witness, and in a sort of and in a sort, observing the other duties commanded by the law, and yet they are not Christians. And these commonly give themselves airs like the Pharisees here saying, are we also blind? I'm doing good stuff. I mean, how could God reject me? I'd, he'd, be, he'd, he'd be privileged to have me on his team. Look how moral I am. Morality. Morality only can make you a better man. Only Jesus can change the heart and make you a child of God. Last one. Immediate worship. Immediate worship. Look what this guy does. Lord, I believe in what? Worshiped him bowed down before Jesus, if not on his knees and his heart, honored Jesus, glorified Jesus, thanked Jesus, appreciated what Jesus had done, became right then and there in John 9, 38, a follower of Jesus Christ. And don't you think this man who now couldn't go back to his family because his parents are afraid if he does, the Jews will excommunicate them. This man who can't go back to his religious community, he has been excommunicated from the synagogue. This man who has no social standing because of his excommunication, but even before that, he was a beggar. He doesn't have anything to go back to. He has nothing. He has nothing except, oh yeah, he has Jesus. And that's all he needed. I believe, and he worshiped him. The former blind man's worship was heartfelt and costly. He had no place to go back to. He just followed Jesus, and it was costly to him. Excommunicated. You know, as we sit here in... Uh, in, in uh, Washington and Robinson and the South Hills. We're pretty comfortable, aren't we? Pretty comfortable. We have no fear, at least at this point in our country, of persecution. No one's in fear that someone's going to break the doors down and come and take us to prison. And, and we've got to admit and, and I'm, I'm not saying you, I'm saying us. We become soft. Our freedom, which we love, that should allow us, and the generosity that God has given us, all the things that God has given us, should, should just propel us to worship Him with our, with our money, with our resources, with our gifts, with our time. But we become soft. ISIS's persecution of Iraqi Christians 
have forced tens of thousands of men, women, and children to flee for their lives. They left everything they had so they wouldn't be killed. And it's fast becoming genocide. The Archbishop of the Syriac Orthodox Church said this, now we consider it genocide, ethnic cleansing. They are killing our people in the name of Allah and telling people that anyone who kills a Christian will go straight to heaven. That's their message. They have burned our churches. They have burned our very old books. They are occupying our churches and converting them to mosques. That's happening today in Syria, in Iraq, rather. Who here doesn't have a vivid memory of those pictures from mid-February of ISIS killing Egyptian Christians as they knelt there on the beach. Their only crime, what? They believed in Jesus. After more than 45 churches, homes, and Christian property were looted and burned down by the Islamic protesters in response to the Charlie Hebna, uh, a Hebdo attack in Paris, remember that, back in January? Those 45 churches that were burned down, the Nigerian Christians still came together to worship the following Sunday. In some instances, believers were at the site of their church the, the day that those churches were burned down. They had lost everything they owned, many of them and still worship. A couple years ago, we were in Sri Lanka, and uh, we had just heard the day before we were going to an area that in that area, some Hindu extremists had beaten up a lot of people and had, uh, be, uh, had destroyed a church. And when we got there that afternoon, we, we went to that place. There were police around. And... Uh, we talked to some of the people who had been there. We talked to one person. They took us into their little home, and you could see where the drawers had just been torn out. The extremists came in and robbed them, looted them. We met one guy who had a gash about this long on his head. He'd been beaten. If you go back there, they were told, we'll kill you. So here we are. How do we respond? We cannot be blind to the things going on around our world and sit here in the comfort that we have and continue to just spend our lives on the things we want to spend our lives on. To whom much is given, much is expected. The freedoms that we have have to be leveraged for the kingdom. The resources we have have to be leveraged for the kingdom. The time we have has to be leveraged for the kingdom. The gifts we have need to be leveraged for the kingdom. It's not, it don't consider yourself a worshiper if you sing songs. Even if you raise your hands. I talked to a brand new believer this past week and he said, I think I'm getting it at the chapel. If you're kind of happy, you raise one hand. If you're real happy, you raise both hands. <laughs> but some of you 
have defined that as worship. And it's not. It's part of it. But real worship bows down before Christ and spends that life for Jesus. That's what he calls us to do. When I ask the pastoral staff to come up, and I'm going to ask you for a gut check today, right? We need that sometimes, don't we? What are you doing with your life? Here in the, the beauty of the South Hills, the beauty of Robinson, the beauty of Washington, the freedoms we have, the resources we have, the time we have, the gifts we have, what are you doing with your life? While, while people like us all around the world, having trusted in Christ, are being persecuted. We can't fly over and fix that. But at least, at the very least, it should give us pause, shouldn't it? To say, wait a minute. How am I going to spend this time and life and money that God has given me? Ball's in your court.